Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I'm going to take a deep dive into the story of the Magi or the Three Kings. The beginning of 2023, we're approaching Epiphany, January 6th, and Christians in many parts of the world will actually be celebrating Three Kings Day, and in some places, for example, in Puerto Rico, Three Kings is a bigger feast day than even Christmas is. So I want to go back and explore in depth Matthew 2, 1 to 12, and look at some of the surprising lessons that we can get when we read this story from what I would consider a missional perspective when we're asking the questions, what does this text teach to religious insiders? What does this text offer to persons on the periphery, seekers, or actually outsiders to the faith? In Christmas lore, the Magi are traditionally three kings who come bearing gifts. And if you've ever seen a perfect nativity scene, the three kings arrive just after the appearance of the shepherds and angels on the joyous night of Jesus's birth, yet a close reading of Matthew's gospel. And this story comes in Matthew 2, 1 to 12. But a close reading of the actual text demonstrates that there's a lot more going on in this text than just an add-on to the Christmas story. Matthew 2, 1 to 12 is actually a passage that's ripe with disturbing challenges to us who are religious insiders, while simultaneously it offers a compelling invitation to those on the margins of our community. Most of us actually misread Matthew 2 because we focus, we tend to focus on the a text that describes the evil of Herod, along with the worship of the infants by three kings. But there's some diff, there's some deeper insights here for those with ears to hear. Before I go any further on today's podcast, I want to remind you that you can find more information at my website, brianrussellphd.com. And also, for those who may be interested in deepening or learning about Centering Prayer, you can sign up for an invitation to a free monthly gathering at centeringprayerbook.com. Also, you will get receive from me some tips and insights on how to deepen your practice. But let's go back to Matthew 2. Let's hear a reading of the text. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who is to shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me a word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, unlike Luke's, there isn't any time spent at all on the night of Jesus' birth. You know, when you look at the four gospels, Luke focuses on the night that Jesus was born. Mark has nothing of Jesus' birth, neither does John's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, there's no manger, there's no angel singing to the glory of God, there's not even a solitary shepherd mentioned, there's not even a hint that Mary and Joseph had had any visitors to see their child. Instead, we have the sudden arrival of a group of astrologers looking for a new king, and they show up in Jerusalem, not actually where Jesus is at. These visitors were not kings. That was a, a mistake in the past. And so this whole tradition of kings uh, comes from a misunderstanding of what magi were. These were wise men. They were seekers and interpreters of the signs from the heavens. And so again, uh, in, in the ancient world, students of the stars and planets, they were a blend of astronomy and astrology. These were keepers of ancient practices of wisdom who show up to see Jesus. This was a well-respected practice in the Greco-Roman world, and it has deep roots in basically almost all cultures on the planet. Now, obviously, what's interesting about this text, the Old Testament clearly prohibited such practices, right? You can look at places like Deuteronomy 18. Their appearance, though, would have intrigued Herod as many rulers in his day both sought out and feared astrological signs. So it's fascinating in terms of the biblical record in hearing this text that the first persons outside of Mary and Joseph to discern the identity of Jesus were astrologers. Again, how did Mary and Joseph know what was going on? Well, they had visions from angels, right? About a miraculous, they had revelation. So it's interesting here that this is a text about a different kind of revelation. This group of outsiders comes to see Jesus and they only know about this because they see a star. So a group of astrologers, the Magi, the wise guys, as like I like to call them, appeared in Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus. And I say a group here because we don't know their precise number, right? Again, you're like, wait a second, aren't there three? And you know, if, depending if you're certain from a certain culture, you may even know the three, 
the names of these three persons. And it's fun. You can go on to Google and look up Three Kings Day and names of, of the kings. And depending on different parts of the planet, different parts of Europe, Puerto Rico, there's different names given to these three kings. And it's from tradition. And generally, it's used as a way to be inclusive of all the people. So there's lots of good things behind the traditions, but it's interesting that it's not really in the text. So we don't know how many people there are were there. The whole number three is based on the fact that there were three gifts, but there could have been a lot more, or even there could have just even been two, right, to have magi. The Gospel of Matthew was most likely written to a group of Jewish Christians in the second half of the first century AD. And these Jewish Christians the ones who were originally receiving Matthew's gospel, they would have been doubly marginalized. As Jewish persons, they were already a tiny minority religion in the Roman Empire. Yet, as Christian Jews, Jews that accepted and believed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they were also marginalized by the wider Jewish community out of which they had actually emerged because they would have been considered um, essentially, you might, I don't think that, that those might not be the right word, but a modern way of understanding, they would have been considered heretical to the wider Jewish community. Yet, they had received the gospel, and Matthew wrote to disciple and equip them for mission. So, as Jewish Christians, they needed help, just as we do today, thinking through what outreach would look like to both their pagan neighbors and how to understand the good news in light of Israel's scriptures that we know as the Old Testament. In Matthew's gospel, earlier we learned from the angel that the child will be named Jesus, this is Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sins. So the open question as we read Matthew's gospel is this, who are his people? Is it just Jewish Christians who recognize who Jesus is? You know, if the original recipients of Matthew, just like us today, it's reasonable to ponder that the possibility of his people are people like us, right? That's what's always hard about mission. We always sort of first hear the word as a word just for us and people like us whichever type of people you happen to be on the other side of this podcast. And one of the challenges of evangelism, true discipleship, making disciple, making disciples, and mission is the reality of the other. Most people tend to associate with others from the same group, whether that's a group based on ideology, um, racial identity, um, social economic identity, those sorts of things. And oftentimes even multi-ethnic groups share a similar social economic status or other affinities. So if we are perhaps startled by the fact that a group of astrologers received knowledge from God, from the true God about Jesus via their stargazing, you can imagine if somebody walked into you know, wherever you gather with believers, not just somebody with a bunch of astrologers showed up and say, hey, we got a message from God. Imagine what that would have sounded like to Matthew's church, hearing the story that the first persons who worshiped Jesus were magi. Even more so, 
It was their faithfulness in not returning to Jerusalem to give Herod Jesus's location that actually initially saved Jesus and the Holy Family from the murderous designs of Herod. So not only are the Magi the first worshipers, they actually save Jesus from Herod initially. Again, Joseph's going to play a powerful role here. But what's interesting, Joseph, the faithful Jewish father of Jesus and the Magi, couldn't have less in common other than their commitment to Jesus. So this is really the first warning that comes out of the story of the Magi to insiders. And here's the warning, right? Because here's these outsiders show up and like, we saw a star. Here's the danger for us who think we know the story of Jesus, who are comfortable in the status quo. It's this, the danger is being so invested in the status quo that we're unable to discern God's actual new work in our midst. You know, the first signal that something's off in this narrative is the arrival of the Magi with a revelation from God. Yet it's the response of Jerusalem that's the red flag. And many of us misread the text right here. Did you notice what it said? Most of us figure out that Herod feels threatened by Jesus. But did you also hear that it's all Jerusalem with him? We get why a corrupt, illegitimate ruler would be threatened by the Messiah. But what about all Jerusalem? Matthew doesn't go into detail, but it doesn't take much imagination to recognize that the Magi brought some destabilizing news, even if it were ultimately good news. Matthew's telling of Jesus' story raises from the beginning the challenges of receiving good news by God's people. By the end of the gospel story, Jesus is going to be all alone, rejected, and condemned by everyone, including the people of Israel, the Romans, and even his disciples are all scattered. And we can begin to see the foreshadowing of that ultimate rejection of even his own people in the announcement of his birth. The coming of Jesus is not merely a threat to King Herod. His birth is frightening even to God's people who presumably prayed and had been praying for liberation from the oppressive rule of Herod and the Romans. Oscar Wilde has a quote that I like. He wrote once, there are two great tragedies in life, getting what you want and not getting what you want. There's real wisdom in, in Wilde's saying. And it's on display here in Matthew 2. God's people longed for the restoration of David's kingdom and the overthrow of oppressive foreign rule. Yet when it's announced, all Jerusalem experiences fear. And what's Matthew's, what Matthew's doing here, he's warning us, and I say us, meaning persons who are interested in what the scripture says, who seek to follow Jesus, about the danger of the status quo. When change comes, there's always winners and losers. For those invested in the present, and a lot of us who have been involved in maybe mainstream, mainline churches, we've been invested in the status quo for a long time. Because we enjoy the stability of it. The old saying is, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. It rings true. And we often, 
even when we struggle in our communities, we tend to prefer the hell of a predictable situation over the possible abundance on the other side of an unpredictable situation. By the way, that's a maxim that comes from Maxi Dunham. So Matthew's text here, his story about the Magi, desires for us to recognize our internal resistance to change that comes when we embrace the kingdom message. Because just think how destabilizing it would be to think, wow, with our theology, what we know already, that, again, a group comes from the outside, they see a star, and God's communicating with people that don't even have the Bible. Wow. Jesus is going to begin his public ministry a few chapters later in Matthew 4, 17 with these words, repent, realign for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When God moves, we must, re- we must respond by realigning our lives in light of its good news. In our minds, we can easily think that the gospel is a threat to the other and friendly to us. In fact, the gospel is always the most dangerous to those who seek to follow it because it's always going to call us to deeper levels of change and growth. If you find yourself when you're reading scripture only discovering insights and readings that affirm your current position, your current status, and your current role, you may be misreading the text. That's one of the lessons of the story. There's a second danger. This one kind of drips with irony. The second danger and warning is this. Be careful that you don't know the Bible so well that we end up stop that we end up stop we end up stop listening to it or at least stop listening to God. So the danger is knowing the Bible so well that we stop listening to it or at least stop listening to God. Matthew's known for his heavy use of Old Testament quotations and allusions to make sense of the identity and mission of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus himself is going to say in 5.17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish but to fulfill. Yet the witness of the Magi and the actions of the scribes in this story remind us powerfully that we can possess the scriptures, study the scriptures, and even interpret them correctly and still miss the message. Because when Herod inquires from the biblical scholars and the priests, you know, where's the Messiah going to be born? They knew already. They quote Micah 5.2 and say, it's in Bethlehem. But notice the interesting thing that happens. Even though they know where the Messiah is going to be, and the Magi say, hey, the Messiah is here, the only people that go to Beth- Bethlehem are the Magi. You would think, would think the priests and the scribes and the Bible scholars would have been charging off to Bethlehem. So notice this truth. Mere intellectual grasp of biblical truth will not overcome the idols of security and connectedness to the status quo. Who wants to risk radical obedience as early adopters when we can slide in the back of the room when it becomes trendy? I don't know what those guys were waiting for. They've been waiting for Messiah their whole life. They find out it's here, but they send the outsiders to go check it out. And the problem of Scripture and the response of religious leaders in Matthew's Gospel is not confined to this passage. Jesus is going to have exegetical conversations with several persons in his Gospel. 
Jesus and Satan both offer readings of texts during the temptation scenes. In his controversies with Pharisees, Jesus is going to be offering readings of the Old Testament that subvert the Pharisees' honored applications. Jesus' readings consistently and radically cut to the heart of the biblical vision for love for God and neighbor, whereas the Pharisees had created a sophisticated ethical system to maintain a high standard of righteousness through a rigorous application of food, Sabbath, and associations, Jesus called them to a deeper understanding of Scripture. We always think of the Pharisees as villains and masters of the missing point, but what we have to remember is these guys would have been looked up to by everybody in Jesus' day. They were the saints. They embraced a radical way of life in order to promote holiness for Israel. But the danger, again, is their commitments to the authority of Scripture and its vigorous application to daily life caused them to not recognize and eventually to reject Jesus and participate in his ultimate condemnation as Messiah. When Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, he joined Matthew for dinner, and then he was a, attacked for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Then Jesus responded by quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees and their desires to practice righteousness cut themselves off from persons who needed God's grace and love. By erecting walls against fellowship, the Pharisees had made it impossible for an outsider to become an insider. In fact, the only hope for a tax collector or a sinner was essentially to live like a Pharisee as a precondition for becoming part of the community the stifled mission and witness. Instead, Jesus pointed to the actual desire of God to extend mercy rather than to embrace a sacrifice. The lesson here in this Magi story is the same, thing, what, same idea. We can become so committed to our traditions and reading of the Bible that we forget its underlying missional emphasis and, perp and purpose. The gospel is about extending the good news of the kingdom to all people. Yes, God desires us to be holy, but it's a missional holiness. We live holy lives so that we can live as light, regardless, regardless of the darkness in the world. Even more subtle, we can learn to enjoy knowing what the Bible says more than we enjoy actually putting into action, applying into our lives the clear teaching of scriptures. It's easy to look back at the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 2 and judge them for completely missing the opportunity to worship the newborn king. But where in our present lives are we fully aware, yet oblivious to God's work in our midst today? What words of scripture frighten us? How are we working to reinterpret or undermine clear implications of biblical texts simply because to follow them would force us to change how we live our lives? Underneath this story of the Magi is a reminder that biblical authority is not just a confession. It's not just knowledge. It's a way of life. In the book of James, James warns us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. 
Lives change when we open ourselves radically to the scriptures and recognize how our blind spots and prejudices block us from taking the most obvious action implied by the text. The lesson of the chief priests and scribes is that knowledge of scripture is never a substitute for obedience to its clear meaning. Friends, don't miss the work of God today by finding your highest joy merely in a right understanding of the word. Hearing scripture means action. The chief priests and scribes knew what the arrival of a king of the Jews would mean, and they knew Herod. That deep fear of an unpredictable future will often suppress any desire to join in. You know, we can gripe, we can moan, we may say that we want something different, but when change comes, we embrace a learn but likely unconscious helplessness, which immobilizes action. So when you find a reading that's truly challenging and seems out of reach or even too good to, tr to be true, ask yourself this, how am I complicit in maintaining a status quo that I claim I don't desire? Chief priests and scribes could have raced out to meet Jesus. No, they stay with Herod. They send the Magi. How would we have to change in order to live out the clear teachings of scriptures today? The truth is, friends, every text desires to do something in us and through us for the sake of God's kingdom. Do we have the ears to hear and take action? There's a third danger. <clears throat> Again, first danger was being so invested in the status quo that we're unable to discern God's work in our midst. The second one was knowing the Bible so well that we stop listening to it, or at least stop listening to God. And the third danger is being so committed to our own power and prestige that we seek to thwart actively God's mission. When we learn to read the Bible for deep formation, we'll know we're there when we gain the ability to see, hear, and feel the deep invitation of scripture to transformation on the other side of our idolatrous commitments. When we strip away our misreadings and inner blocks, we'll see an expanded capacity for living, authentic living. The response of Jerusalem to the Magi serves as a warning to communities of faith today against misunderstanding God's mission. You know, it's easy to misunderstand it's easy to understand that reaction of Jesus's of, of of Jerusalem's religious elite. You know, danger one warned about being invested in the status quo, but there is something deeper at play than mere fear of possible change. We're allowed to feel fear when change comes. It's only natural. The more insidious form of fear about possible change involves a deep recognition that God may be involved, yet still resisting the change because of our commitment to power, prestige, and security. The Magi have appeared and announced the birth of the King of the Jews. This was good news for everybody that longed for God to usher in a new age of salvation through the restoration of David's kingship. That was the whole point. The real, the Magi were seeking the Messiah. The problem with good news, however, is it brings real change and it can feel risky. Rather than embracing the good news of the Magi's message, the chief priests and scribes then conspire openly with Herod by giving him the information from the scriptures that he wanted. 
He planned to kill the Messiah and later in the chapter takes massive action to eliminate all children under the age of two, lest he let the Messiah slip away. The chief priests and scribes don't go to Jerusalem. They want no part of it. The religious leaders only speak when Herod requests information. They're silent otherwise in the story. Contrast the silence and inaction of the religious establishment with the wonder and awe of the Magi. Or even contrast that back with Joseph and how Joseph, just a few verses before this Magi story, reacted to the angel's revelation about Mary's pregnancy and how he then basically adopts Jesus and names him and creates that holy family. That didn't make any sense. That challenged Joseph's status quo, but he took action. And like this, he's like the Magi, right? The Magi didn't just receive revelation about the king of the Jews. They took action. We don't know how far they traveled. They came a long way. And they didn't flinch when they received a second revelation. They get that second thing, don't, from about not going back to Herod in a dream. God warns them in Matthew 2.12. And this action actually defied the express command of Herod. In Matthew 2.8, Herod had told them to come back and let them him know about Jesus, about the Messiah. Remember, the Magi were strangers and outsiders. They were not even under the protection of Herod. They'd come from afar to find the king. And so by openly defying Herod, they put themselves and their futures at stake. Yet unlike the religious leaders who knew the scriptures and did nothing, the Magi risked obedience and by doing so helped to save the infant Jesus from death at the hands of Herod. The power of Matthew 2, 1 to 12 as we open ourselves up to the season of Epiphany, is due to the contrast between the responses of insiders and outsiders, that is the Magi. Ironically, the religious authorities end up siding with the murderous Herod, whereas these pagan astrologers, they don't even have the scriptures, end up on the right side of God's kingdom. The Magi set an example for us today of what a faithful and radical response to Revelation looks like and reminds us that sometimes it's harder for the word to work within insiders than it is for that good news to reach people on the outside who are truly desperate for what only God can do. And this text then is about invitations. It's a missional text, and there's going to be a series of invitations. I just gave the warnings to insiders, but there's invitations here to outsiders. And that first invitation is the invitation to follow Jesus for the chance to experience a real life. That's what, that's what the Magi do. They come looking for the king of the Jews. Jesus is later going to share two parables that demonstrate the immense and incomparable value of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, 44 and 45, he talks about a person who finds a treasure in the field, and then that person sells everything in order to buy the field with the treasure. And then in 1345, he tells the story of a pearl merchant who finds a pearl so exquisite that he sells all that he possessed in order to buy it. Paul speaks in a similar fashion in Philippians 3, where he speaks of his past accomplishments and positions of status as rubbish compared with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Sometimes when reading scripture, we simply forget how truly astonishing the life of the kingdom is. 
Henry David Thoreau and Walden famously penned, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Thoreau believed that men and women could improve their lives and explores what this would look like in his book, I firmly believe that much of the vitality of the Christ-following movement has been undercut by the suffocating nature of church culture. We offer the gospel in ways that reduce it to a mixture of emotional exuberance, intellectual abstraction, self-improvement tips, political ideology, and the worldly focus on, and an otherworldly focus on eternal life, instead of what? Transformation. We don't know much about the personal stories of the Magi, but we do know this. They traveled a great distance simply for the opportunity to be in the presence of the child that we now proclaim as King Jesus. A man or woman doesn't risk such a journey unless they're looking for a bigger and better life. The gospel message is a bold and daring one that we must not mute today. It is more than merely finding meaning and purpose. The gospel doesn't offer us some generic opportunity to make the world a better place. The gospel of the kingdom invites us to join God's mission of making all things new. The Magi were hungry for something better than mere religion, political access, and the other trappings of the human status quo. They were not looking merely to find a value-driven firm to work for or to start a not-for-profit or an NGO. They were looking for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They were desperate for what only God can provide. And I say this simply as this, and I'm assuming those listening to this, many of you are Christians, were insiders. When was the last time you were truly excited and hungry for the deep life that Scripture describes and offers those who are hungry? That's the invitation. Invitation two. Invitation one is seeking to follow Jesus for the chance of, to experience a real life. Invitation two, experiencing true joy in encountering Jesus. After the detour in Jerusalem, the Magi follow that special star in Bethlehem, and the star stops over the place where the child was staying. And look at what the text says. They were overwhelmed with joy. Imagine what that felt like, overwhelmed with joy. Contrast that with the anxiety of our age, the fears of our age, the guilt, the shame. Overwhelmed with joy. Yeah. This was a joy in discovering an elusive pursuit. As humans created in God's image, we long to find true meaning and connection, fulfillment. Yet how many of us actually find it? How often do we experience an overwhelming sense of joy in our lives that we've found it? That moment when you accept the fact that you're unconditionally accepted as a person loved by God. The, rat, the Magi point to something more powerful than happiness here, though. They remind us of the joy and astonishment of finding Jesus. And notice that how their reaction contrasts with the fear and dread of Herod and all the insiders in all Jerusalem. The Magi remind religious insiders, us, of the profound joy of encountering the gospel for the first time. Sometimes we forget that. And when we insulate ourselves from the world, we can easily miss the good news of knowing Jesus. And when we lose sight of the joy of the gospel, 
We can become distracted by the concerns of the world. And sometimes we block the road to authentic joy because we fear the changes that cause, that the cause of the joy will bring. The Magi weren't worried about the fate of King Herod or of the religious elite in Jerusalem or the potential trouble with Rome. In other words, a maintenance in favor of stability and security was not on the agenda. The Magi chose joy. How about us? Invitation three. Finding true life in self-surrender and in the worship of King Jesus. The Magi weren't content just to experience the birth of a king from a distance. Intellectual knowledge wasn't going to cut it. They weren't just going to look at the star. They needed a taste for themselves. They wanted to have skin in the game. So they journeyed from however far away they were all the way to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem until they arrived at the home where Joseph and Mary lived with their child Jesus. And their response is profound. In the presence of this young child, these elites from the east bowed down and worshiped him. The Magi did not react this way to the insiders. They didn't bow down and worship King Herod. The word worship is repeated three times in this passage. It's in verse 2, it's verse 8, it's verse 11. Our text uses the word homage. I think worship is a little easier for us to understand. And, the, and it's used 13 times throughout Matthew. And in Matthew's gospel, it's code language. It's the proper response to the person of Jesus as Jesus, the Son of God. You can look up at verse 2, 2, 2, 11, 8, 2, 15, 25, 28, 9, 28, 17. It's the recognition of who Jesus is and his authority. And that stands in profound contrast to the actions of Herod and all Jerusalem who sought to thwart God's plans by murdering Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus. And so that word worship here is code for conversion. The Magi are literally the first converts to the gospel, these outsiders, these astrologers. But they don't stop with worship. They also have a full surrender, not just through their, by prostrating themselves to Jesus in worship, but they also offer the baby Jesus costly gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these gifts are gestures of submission. They represent the surrender of the Magi to the Lordship of Jesus, this little baby. They are ritually offering to Jesus all that they have and all that they are for the use by his kingdom. And this text invites us to do the same. True life is not found in amassing power, wealth, prestige through our own efforts. It's not about our ego-driven needs. True life is, about, is found in surrendering all that we are to Jesus. The Magi serve as a powerful reminder to insiders of the need for ongoing worship and surrender. Again, Matthew 4, 17, that Jesus is going to summarize his message, repent continually for the kingdom of heaven is here. And his life as Jesus' followers involves an ongoing realignment with God's new work. Jerusalem wasn't ready for the newness through worship and surrender, but what about us today? So we begin a new year.
Have we arrived at a point in our life in which we've surrendered ourselves to God and moved from a life focused on self to a life focused on blessing and serving others and loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind? Is it time for a recommitment? But there's a fourth invitation here. Again, this text invites outsider seekers to follow Jesus for this chance to experience a real life. It invites the Magi to experience true joy by encountering Jesus in the flesh. It invites the Magi to find true life in surrender and in the worship of King Jesus. And last, it invites the Magi not to stay, but to return to their own lot, to their old lives, to share the gospel. An encounter with God is never a mere personal experience. E. Stanley Jones once wrote, Christianity that doesn't begin with the individual doesn't begin, but Christianity that ends with the individual and so it's never just a personal experience. When God meets us, God transforms us. And that shift involves moving from being self-centered to an external focus and mission becomes the goal rather than self-fulfillment or personal growth. The Holy Spirit then is going to propel us back into the world to participate fully in God's mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Magi didn't stay. They didn't, they didn't stay in Israel with the Savior of the world. They offered themselves to the king, and then they went home. And we don't hear about these magi again in the New Testament. But these unnamed magi presumably became the very first Christian missionaries in history. They took the story back. They came to pay homage to the king because they instinctively realized that Jesus was the one for whom their very beings longed, to whom their, relig their wisdom tradition had pointed. But having met Jesus, they returned to their own lives. But this is only half the story. They don't return to the status quo of their old, own old lives. They're now living as transformed persons. And their actions of the Magi here then foreshadow the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel ends famously with the Great Commission where the risen Christ sends out his 11 disciples into the world to make disciples of all nations. Isn't it fascinating that these outsiders, the Magi, were the first ones to embody the Great Commission? And that's our mandate today. It's my friend Alex McManus likes to say the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. Who else was on God's mission in Matthew 2? We need to also remember Joseph. He wasn't a full-fledged outsider given his place in Jesus' genealogy. Nevertheless, he stands in contrast to the Jerusalem insiders. Like the Magi, Joseph's a hero because he protects Mary and the newborn Messiah regardless of personal cost to himself. And after this story, Joseph, in response to a dream, also moves the family to protect Jesus, and he moves to Egypt, 
And then later on, when he comes back after Herod passes, again, in response to a dream, Joseph takes the family to Galilee and settles in Nazareth. Galilee during Jesus' day was a borderland region. It was a mix of cultural in terms of the demographics, but it wasn't multicultural But in, the, in terms of being integrated, but there were Jews and Gentiles, and it's likely that Jews were in the minority. Yet this is where Joseph, a son of David, moved the Holy Family to avoid the Herodians. We don't know Joseph's origin in the Gospel of Matthew. Luke's Gospel informs us that he hailed from Nazareth, but Matthew informs us that Joseph moved to Nazareth to protect Jesus upon the return from Egypt. So what does this mean for us today? What does all this mean? It basically tells us that a reading of Matthew 2 is not complete without understanding the implications for the love of neighbor. The mission of God recognizes its roots for a love for the God who loves us, but it always ushers forth an expanding love for others. Love for others, including sharing the good news and practicing mercy and justice. Yet Matthew 2 puts into juxtaposition the irony of the lack of missional urgency on the part of religious outsiders. Who was on mission for Matthew 2? It wasn't the connected and powerful. It wasn't the biblical scholars. It wasn't the priests. It wasn't even the inhabitants of the holy city of Jerusalem. The Magi were on God's mission. And then Joseph, from humble beginnings, was on God's mission. I've used the expression God's mission now multiple times, simply to remind all of us who are listening that we're all on some mission. Herod was on the mission of maintaining power and prestige. The religious insiders were as well. And where did that mission end? It was a murderous one. The dark side of Matthew 2, where Herod murders all the children, foreshadows how the gospel story is ultimately going to go. By the end of Matthew, all involved, Jew and Gentile, were conspiring to send Jesus to his death. Yet the witness of the Magi to this day an epiphany, beginning of Jan- uh, in January 2023, testifies to the true mission of humanity, as we saw in a previ- as we saw previously, and I talk about a lot. God created people to serve as visible witnesses to the invisible God. The Magi returned home and presumably shared the good news they found. We don't know any details, but that isn't the point here. Matthew shares this episode as a warning to insiders and as an invitation to newcomers and seekers about the critical role of bringing the gospel into the very context out of which we come. Friends, in 2023, how does God want to use you to shape the lives of others and share the gospel? And if you're an insider listening, don't be so invested in the status quo that you miss the new work that God's trying to do now. Don't get to the point where you know the Bible so well that we stop listening to it, or at least stop listening to God. Three, don't be ever be so committed to our own power and prestige and ego that we seek to thwart actively that work that God's doing. 
And then hear the invitation. Seek to follow Jesus for the chance to experience a real life. Come and experience true joy in an encounter with Jesus. Find your true life through surrender and worship of King Jesus. And last, go back home and share the message there. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If I can serve you in any way, reach out to me, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. If you found this episode helpful, share it with a friend. I'd love it if you could leave a review. If you're interested, check out the show notes for additional resources. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope to others.